You're listening to Raw, the 90s rave podcast with Chrissy Richards and Tom Latcham as we bring you the second half of our exclusive interview with breakbeat hardcore legend and all-round funny bloke lunacy of Nightforce Records. We're here with uh, Lunacy, Chris Howell, the Night Force Breakbeat Hardcore legend. Uh, Chris, let's journey back to the early parts of your career. You've, you've spoken in the past about how you weren't a confident youngster and you found raves more comfortable to socialise in. Why do you, what is it about the raves, and particularly those in the 90s, that, that, gave, that engendered that feeling among people like yourself? I think because we were the odd bods. We were the... We were the weirdos, mostly. I mean, Rave, Rave had everyone. You'd see the occasional person in a football T-shirt or whatever. But when I first went to like Labyrinth, for example, it was just full of weirdos, just full of the people that didn't fit in. And I was already one of those. I was a skateboarder, and skateboarders were also the people that didn't fit in. So I think Rave was a haven for a lot of people, and probably still is to some degree, for the people that don't... They look at the modern world or the world they're presented with and think, well, I don't... I don't think much of that. Like, I didn't understand a lot of it. A lot of the things, and still don't, a lot of the things that other people are really concerned about and love, I don't get. Like, I don't get sports. I don't understand caring about who wins. I don't know why Why would I care. I don't, I'm not playing. I didn't do anything to get that sports ball in that sports net, you know? So, <laughs> Which is what the commentator I don't, never said. I don't said. understand why I would give a shit who, who does it. And even when I was playing the game, like at school, I got into so much trouble because... They, they would just, I would kick the ball in any direction and they would be like, well, now we're not going to win. And I'd be like, well, what do we get? Do we get money? I mean, why are we doing this? And they're like, if you're not going to play properly, don't play. And I'd be like, awesome, I can go and read. See ya. <laughs> you know, like I, I just, you know. So I think rave culture in a lot of ways attracted those people, the people that just didn't think fucking Barry Manilow was good music and they just didn't think sports were that important and they didn't understand church and they didn't want to do a normal job and, they looked at all the offers they were presented to work in a supermarket or spend 20 years becoming a banker and thought, well, that sounds shit. <laughs> so they, they just, you know, I think it attracted all of the people that just didn't fit, really. And I was definitely one of those. So you said at school you were hopeless at music and art, but you've managed to make a career using both. What do you think that says <laughs> about the British education system? I don't think it's the British education system. I think it's um, art as an education. I... I there is technique that can be taught and that can be valuable. But I generally think that art and music, you either want to do it and love it and you learn it or you don't and you never will. I don't, I don't think you can take somebody who doesn't give a shit about art, like painting, and teach them to be a good painter. I think it has to be something in you that you want to do. So I didn't know it was in me and the school didn't bring that out of me. And why would it? Like I, I don't know what school does now. But I was like 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, and they're talking about Mozart. Why would I give a shit about Mozart? I'm listening to Eric B. and Rakim and Public Enemy. <laughs> like, there's no, you know, I, I, maybe they're more contemporary now. And everyone has to listen to Drake or somebody else with a bunch of letters instead of and numbers in their name. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know modern things. But all I know is back in the day, and, and art was the same. They were like, I loved skateboarding art. I still love skateboarding mm. art. I love all the original Peralta art and Santa Cruz and stuff. I love all that stuff. I am not interested in drawing an egg, you know. So I, and I understand that you have to learn the basics. But again, 14, 15, I'm not interested in it. So I was never going to be good at it at school. Uh, it's just what it is. You, when you talk about the rave scene in the 90s being a, a sort of haven for misfits uh, in a way, you've spoken about your first rave, which was Labyrinth, and you went along with a guy who you didn't even like just because, yeah. you know, something to do. How do you not have gone with that guy? Do you think you'd have found your way into rave music eventually? Uh, and, and how different might your career have been? I don't know. It's a good question. I think about those things sometimes. Or like... What would happen if Sesame Street hadn't happened? Would I have still made a record label? And the answer is I have no idea. Like life is so full of minuscule things. Like even if he, if I hadn't gone with him, ignoring that, what if the first thing I had heard wasn't Quadrophonia? What if I, the first rave I'd gone to was like, I don't know, the first stuff I heard at the first rave I went to couldn't have been better made to impress me. I liked hip hop. I liked fast hip-hop. And the first thing, one of the first records I heard was Quadrophonia, which is fast rapping, 
over a techno beat. So I was immediately like blown away by the whole thing, you know. So I don't know. I think I probably would have drifted to it eventually. Whether whether I would have dived in head first the way I did is another question. And I think if I hadn't have had Smarties, I probably would have ended up somewhere DJing probably instead of producing. Mm. But yeah, I don't know. It's a good question. So tell us about your best and worst uh, rave experiences. Oh, hmm. I don't have a very good memory, so it's quite <laughs> hard. I mean, some of the worst were some of the PAs I did with Smarties just because they were so unprofessional and shit and we had no idea what we were doing. The one where some guy was, we didn't have the keyboards plugged in and so for the whole 15 minutes some guy was at the front of the crowd going, Oi, mate, your keyboard's not plugged in. That was... Brilliant excruciating <laughs> or the one where we we couldn't get a dat tape for whatever reason because dat tapes were shit so we had a cd and the cd was skipping while we were pretending to play that was excruciating there's a lot of excruciating moments in my I past as those well sorts as of pas were always my favorite they were just so funny <laughs> they were the best like, like, they were we were so bad they were so bad i do have good memories too though we did the radio one road show and that was amazing to be like playing to like so many people I played the um, the Love Parade. That was pretty incredible, like being on the back of a truck and playing through that crowd. And one of the most incredible things was that it took me 45 minutes to get off the truck and back to my hotel, even though it was less than a mile away because there were so many people. Like, that is a crowd. There's a crowd, and then there's a crowd that you're walking through, and 20 minutes later, you're still walking through the crowd. You're like, fuck me, I'm still on the same road, and I ain't got nowhere yet. That was pretty amazing. And what about as a raver? Uh, well, Labyrinth, obviously. My first visit to Labyrinth was just amazing i distinctly remember telepathy in stratford uh, mainly because it was the first time i heard t99 anastasia and they had a huge screen playing the movie dumbo uh backwards for no reason that i can really remember but i remember t99 being played and the whole place just going fucking mental and that, that even now i get goosebumps just thinking of that that was just Oh, that was brilliant. Tell us about um, hanging out at Boogie Time Records and how important was record shops to the 90s rave scene? Oh, they were essential. And hanging out at Boogie Times was great. You have to remember, a lot of the stuff that happened with um, Smarties happened afterwards. Like, at first, when we first working with Danny Donnelly in Suburban Bass, we had done that um, Bill and Ted's track on Boogie Time. So we weren't, like you know, important artists for the label or anything. But we did get to hang out and we'd always already been to the shop loads of times. So we knew Winston and Danny Brakes pretty well. And Dave Nods was one of the funniest people on the planet. He was always great for a laugh. And you'd bump into like, you know, Rachel Wallace or Austin. And it was just, for me, I, I just, they were all just brilliant people, you know. And I love Danny Donnelly as well. I thought he was fucking awesome. It's one of the reasons that I was so upset when everything went wrong because, is it's a thing you learn. You never get ripped off by your enemies. You get ripped off by your friends. And that's what makes it so painful because I thought Danny was fucking great. I thought he was funny and he was nice. And I just, I, I mean, everything that Suburban Bass did, I completely admired. I was into hip hop and they had a graffiti logo. His office was all like super cool, although now it would look like terrible by our standards, but it was all in grey and leather sofa. And Dave was in the corner making artwork like that. You know, draw something amazing. Bing, finished. And I was like, you fucking arsehole. I can't even draw that in a million years. But Dave, you know, Dave Nods was funny as fuck. It, it was just a really great time. I look back at that with real fondness of how fun it was, you know. I'd show up there with Tom from Smarties. Nick didn't really go with that because he was older than us and stayed at home. But And we'd go there and music power. And then I have great memories of at the weekends, me and Alky D, Darren Maycott, we'd just go vinyl shopping all day. We'd get up at nine in the morning and get on the train to Underground, start off in Camden. You know, we'd go through HMV and Tower Records is what I was trying to think. Um, and, you know, they didn't often have stuff. But they, even then, they were starting to catch on and they had stuff. And you'd find these little hole-in-the-wall shops. You'd go up a fucking staircase and round a corner and there'd be a store with like 15 records in it. You know, it was just, it was a wonderful time. I loved it. You'd come back with those really strong record bags. Do you remember those? Which weighed a ton. And you'd have like that many records in it and you'd have four of the bags and you'd have spent like 200 quid because you were young and had money and nothing else to do. <laughs> it was great. Yeah, I, I, miss that. I miss those days. I remember being in Music Power when Charlie arrived. And the shop had, a, um, had the counter at the front and it must have been 10 or 15 people deep. And they would play a record and you'd put your hand up and they'd pass it through and you'd end up with this thing. It'd take 10 minutes, 20 minutes just to pay for your records because of the queue. 
Fucking brilliant. And those are times that I don't think will ever get repeated, sadly. But, yeah, best of times. I loved it. There's obviously you guys, the Smarties, uh, SL2, Prodigy, Sons of Luke the Loop. You could go on uh, in terms of acts from that sort of London, Essex borders. What was it, do you think, about that area in particular that created so many great rave acts? It was probably the combination of uh, middle-class people, middle-class kids who had the time and just about enough access to money to be able to do it. Um, like, if you were any richer, you would do something more worthwhile. Because remember, at the time, that was regarded as a, as a pointless thing to do. That wasn't going to be a big music. No one thought that was going to be big, you know? But you also had to be in an area that was just shit enough that you were not happy with your lot. Do you know what I mean? Like, Romford is a perfect example of a place where you would have enough money to maybe get a sampler but it's also a shithole. <laughs> so you'd be like, I don't want to stay here. Even though, compared to a lot of places, Romford was a paradise. Do you know what I mean? Like, you have to remember the perspective of the people. So I was, I was quite discontent as a youth. Like, even though I lived in a house that, like, was three stories and had a big yard and I had both my mum and my dad and my brother and my sisters and we were definitely not rich, but we certainly weren't on the breadline. Do you know what I mean? We were in a good position. And yet I was just... Just young enough to have an attitude about it and think, oh, my life's so difficult. You know what I mean? You had to have that combination of that and that little bit of rebelliousness so that you'd make the music. I think it's all, that's all part of it. Access to it, time to do it, and the circumstances you're in. Uh, the stuff that you were making uh, in the early 90s with Smarties, but a lot of stuff around then as well, you know, Charlie is a good example from Prodigy. It was unashamedly silly. Uh, do you think that parts of the rave scene lost something by taking itself more a bit too seriously i think it went the other way actually i think being silly was a good part of the rave scene but it got too silly like it it got too too much stuff was just rip-offs too much stuff was just silliness and jokes it was okay to have the odd smarties track that was fine but when you started getting horsepower and trumpton and all the rest and i'm not saying they copied us though a lot of them came out at the same time but it was too many people making the music into stupid shit and not enough people doing serious music. I quite liked the silly music. I liked do, the serious music. Yeah, I mean, don't get me well. wrong. I, I used to collect that. I had every daft record that got released because it made me laugh. And it still does. I love, I love really stupid things. But um, loving a thing and recognising it isn't always the best thing, you know, that's, that's okay. You can, you, can, you can have both. You can say, I love that. And it also did harm. Like every ex-girlfriend or boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> In the early 90s, DJing was kind of less important than just the parties and the tunes. Do you think that DJ culture, now this whole like hero of the DJ, has had a negative impact on music? Does it have any positives? Yeah, I think it's, I th- I think, I think it's horrendous and it was one of the things that made everything go wrong. You used to go to a rave for the music and the people and as soon as DJ worshipping came in, I mean that's against the whole ethic of rave. The whole ethic of the original rave scene was that we all get together and have a party and we're all equal and it's all fun. If you start sticking somebody in there as a god, as everybody has to worship, well, you fucked it, haven't you? Now it's become a church service. You know, like you've changed it from being a group of people all getting together to have fun to a group of people all getting together to watch a show. That's a whole different thing. So I am firmly and remain firmly against that. I think the superstar DJ thing is horrible and wrong. And I know it's just what happens. But I don't think it's a good thing that happens. I think a lot of good artists just get missed this way as well, don't they? Like people won't go to events where they look at a flyer and don't know the names, where those are the events I go to now because I'll, I'll hear all great music because they're, no, they're not a special person so they don't have to care what they play. I don't know with the world as it is, like I often think rave music was the last underground thing because you can't be underground in the modern day because as soon as something's popular, it's popular worldwide via the internet. So I don't know how you can get around it, um, short of being completely bizarre and doing raves with big-name people and not putting their name on the flyer. But DJs have, like, their own name logo now, and you do a flyer, and they've all got the same Dick fucking me. logos and on it. And I'm they're like, impossible I'm so to tempted. read as well. I wanted to do... Ones, you just, you don't know, you, I, I, I don't know what that is. It's like just squiggle. It's like wingdings, isn't it? Yeah. Windows wingdings. Well, I, I, I was asked for one recently, so I did a really bad handwriting of me just writing lunacy. 
Because <laughs> like, I, I just thought that would be perfect. Like, you've got all these flies that are really cool names. It's just some cunt who's written it with Byro. You know? Like, like, I like, insist that its background is like yellow striped notepad. This is your original ganja smoking This is Raw, the 90s rave podcast with me, Chrissy Richards, and Tom Letcham. Yeah, so uh, we've got to know Chris quite well in the first episode and, and through this uh, second episode, but uh, why don't we uh, do a bit of filleting, try and get to know him a little bit extra with our quick fire round. You want to go first, Chris? Kick us off? Yes, full name. Uh, Christopher Reed Howell. I will just add that my middle name, Reed, is R-E-A-D, which is a stupid way to spell it. <laughs> and I asked my... And I asked my dad why it was spelt that way, and it said because his dad spelt it that way, and it was a stupid way of spelling it, and he hated it, so he gave it to me. And incidentally, I've given it to both Wilder and Phoenix, who are both Wilder Reed Howell and Phoenix Reed Howell. So it's it's like forever, isn't it? It's a tradition worth carrying on. How old are you? I don't know. 46 or 47? I honestly, I don't. I have to ask the wife these things. I think 47. But I feel like I've been 47 for about four years, so fuck knows. That's fine. I've been 29 for a long time. Where are you originally from? Loughton in Essex, I guess. I think I was born in Epping. Uh, relationship status? Uh, married. Any kids? If yes, how old? Uh, two kids. Wilder is four and Phoenix is two. What music do you like except rave music? The only one I don't like is jazz. Um, I've got, again, nothing against it, but to me it sounds like loads of people playing different songs at the same time. Um I do really, really, really love miserable guitar music played by Sad Man. I don't even know what it's called. I used to call it folk, but it's not really folk. It's not acoustic rock because it's not rock. Acoustic whining, I can't stand it. But, you know, everything, Leonard Cohen, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, Bon Iver. Like, if they're miserable and playing a song on their own about how sad they are, I fucking love it. (laughs) So what's your (laughs) favourite non-dance song? The Future by Leonard Cohen is what springs to mind. What's your favourite food? Probably Mexican in America, but not real traditional Mexican. I like cheap shit American Mexican food, you know, because it comes with cheese. One one person took me to like a proper, they were like, this is a proper authentic Mexican restaurant. I was like, yay. And all it was was cilantro and no cheese. And I was like, I don't like cilantro. And where's the cheese? What's the point of Mexican without a cheese dip? (laughs) What's your favourite drink? Uh, Red Bull, I suppose. Although I've had to stop drinking it because I'm old. Cindy says things like, you'll get a heart attack. And I'm like, thanks. <laughs> What's your favourite uh, movie? Uh, the Fountain. It's about death and immortal and immortality and love. It's a very interesting concept. It, it didn't do very well at the cinemas, but I think it's an absolutely beautiful movie. Just summed up Night Force in a movie, basically. <laughs> <laughs> do you have a favourite TV show? Uh, I barely watch TV. I really liked Game of Thrones when it was on. So I guess that for now, until the last season, which was shite. Do you have any hobbies, any secret hobbies that we don't know about? I play the banjo sometimes. Um, Which is perfect where you live, right? Yeah, because I've already got the teeth, being English. (laughs) 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 So all I need is a pair of dungarees and to drool when I speak and make the letter four, have uh, make the number four have about eight syllables. Honestly, people here, they go one, two, three, four. <laughs> Who's the most famous person you've ever met? Uh, probably MC Hammer. We were doing a, a PA, a Smarties PA, and he showed up. And some of the attention on us was lost. <laughs> <laughs> he was very nice, though, by the way. Oh, was he? As a general, a general rule with famous people, I found, is the ones you think are dicks, really nice people. The ones you think are cool, dicks um if you got a a celebrity that you hate i don't like the ones that get in my head who i don't want to know about like i know about the cardassians i don't want to know about that that's just in my head i know about the queen i don't care about the queen why should that be in my head i don't like stuff coming into my life that's nothing to do with me that i didn't research that i'm just kind of bombarded with through the shit media and i just know about it do you have a celebrity crush um no i find most of them to be quite boring like, they all look the same. There's blonde woman, and then there's brown-haired woman. Same as there is with the guys. All the guys are hunky dude that looks like this, and other hunky dude that looks like this. They're just, like, so generic. Boring as shit. I used to quite fancy Jodie Foster when I was, like, 18. Wasn't she, like, 12 when she was in Star Wars? She wasn't in Star Wars, though. Oh, right. In that case, <laughs> funny, no, that, funny, that you, <laughs> funny that you bring that up, though. Funny that you bring that up. I remembered the other day that my very first crush on TV was the girl who played Special K in Breakdance the Movie. (laughs) Brilliant. I hadn't thought of it for years. And then I saw a picture of her and I was like, wow, I remember when I was like 12 and I just thought she was the 
most amazing thing I ever saw. Uh, what is your best trait? Well, that's an arrogant one, whatever you answer, isn't it? I think the ability to know that I am often wrong and that's all right. That's good. What about your worst one? I have no patience. I've got no patience for anything. My iPhone broke the other day, so I threw it out the window of the car. (laughs) (laughs) But if I can say you're being very patient with us, and thank you very much. Uh, What (laughs) would you change, if you could change one thing, if you were the world king for the day? I would make it illegal to put any price tag on a product that doesn't come off and ruins the product. Anybody that does that would have to be shot. (laughs) That winds me up no end. You buy a thing, you can't get the fucking label off. You assholes! I, I mean, I bought some wood to do the house with. I couldn't get the label off. It ruined the wood. What the fuck? Racism, sexism, all fine, but no, labels yeah. that labels. mark. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. Well, because I think it would just be like if you got rid of sexism, you'd just have some newism, wouldn't you? If you can only like, true. if I could get rid of fifty things, then maybe. But if it's just one thing, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, now you made me feel stupid. See, I should no. sexism. I would get rid of sexism and well, racism. What about everybody would be happy. about racism then? <laughs> the reason I put that question on there is because I know you'd have a funny answer. Um, and finally, tell us one thing about yourself that will surprise people. I'm trying to think of anything that might surprise me. I'm a lousy driver, but does that surprise anybody? No. No, see? It, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, when you used to live over here, Chris, you didn't drive. You didn't drive. I used to have to drive you everywhere. I know. I, I took my test over here. It was so funny. I was like, how does anybody fail this test? You had to do things like reverse into a space between two cones that were 30 feet apart. <laughs> Like, how do you not make that? Do you just have to drive into a wall? You talk, Chris. Uh, you talk, Chris, about the internet and 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 uh, and and what it's what it's done and it's changed. Has it not, in a way, though, leveled that playing field? I think the internet has been a a blessing and a curse in that respect. It has leveled the playing field in that anyone can now do it. The same way as cheap studio equipment has leveled the playing field like back in the day if you wanted to get in a studio well that was difficult you know what i mean like there wasn't many people who had a studio and you had to know somebody who knew somebody and you had to be able to get friendly with them and get into the studio to do that and you'd have a studio that was like had all the power of an iphone but cost 15 grand you know so you couldn't just do stuff whereas now like literally i could go out and buy a laptop tomorrow and have a studio set up in about two hours and probably wouldn't even have to pay much more than an iphone for the whole thing um so yeah that means everybody's got access is that a good thing i suppose the uh i'm a person that believes everybody should have have access and be on an equal playing field is the result a good thing probably not because what you used to have was if you wanted to get in the studio you had to really want to get in the studio whereas now you can just be like i'm bored i'm gonna make a track do you know what i mean like you, you you couldn't, and it's the same with DJing and stuff. It used to be like if you wanted to be a good DJ, you had to be out buying records and you had to be on the cutting edge. You had to be listening to pirate radio and finding the white labels and going around all the shops. Whereas now you can just go, right, today I'm going to be a drum and bass DJ. Go to Beatport, download all the drum and bass tunes, and off we go. So I think something is lost in that it attracts a lot of people who are not dedicated. Having said that, I think previously you could have really wanted to do it and just never had the opportunity because you never knew somebody who had a studio and you didn't have the money to do it. So, I don't know. I don't know. Do I prefer it how it used to be? Of course I do, because it worked well for me, didn't it? <laughs> you know? But, like, I, I just think that's a lot of the case. It's like when you hear rappers go, never sell out. Well, that's all right for you. You didn't and you made some money. But what about the dude that didn't sell out and didn't make any money and is now working in the supermarket? Hmm. It's easy to be happy about it when you've won. <laughs> <laughs> so, coming back to your pop stardom, did you oh did you really enjoy that? It's, no, not very. Well, it's much. interesting reading your book because you, you there were certain things that you clearly did enjoy, and you mentioned the girls and the money. You never met, really met girls particularly before, and you and you got girls the first. Yeah, time. that was that was definitely a lot easier for yeah. me when when I was so, there were thi- so, so there were, famous. There were elements that you did enjoy, but overall, it was difficult to work out having read the book whether you whether you enjoyed it as an experience or not. You know, when you go and watch a film and it's really brilliant, and you never want to watch it again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was like that. Like, it, I, I'm glad I did it. I'm glad all that stuff happened. I learned a whole lot of stuff. It was great to get paid a shitload of money for a stupid record like that. It was great to meet girls and, you know, learn I could um, get past my shyness and inabilities. It taught me a lot of things about how to behave. Um, 
but it was also horrible. You know, I, I, I didn't want to do any of those things. They were good for me. Like eating your greens is good for you, but I didn't want to do it. And at the end of it, I definitely benefited from it. So the reason it's not clear whether I enjoyed it or not is because it's both. I really enjoyed it and I also hated it, you know. This is Raw, the 90s rave podcast. We hope you're enjoying listening to them as much as we enjoy making them. But now here comes the money bit. We are three average people with expensive children and busy lives. We would love to continue bringing you more epic 90s rave content, but we need your help in order to do this. We've set up a GoFundMe page and you could become a part of this fantastic and exciting project documenting the 90s for less than the price of a posh local bread. Head on over to GoFundMe.com forward slash the 90s rave podcast and help us to make history. And now we've got some big ups to the following people. Arthur Roski, Ica Green, Halcyon and Jay Ransom, Mark Simmons, aka Old HB, Ruben Wurlidge, Mel Casey and Tom Evans. We would like to say thank you very much for your generous donations. I was uh, really interested in what you said in the book about how you felt that the sort of the, the, the kickback to Sesame's uh, treat uh, was that some really great dark hardcore uh, came about, partly as a reaction to that and other songs that were, that were similar to, to Sesame Street. Do you genuinely believe that yeah. to be the case? Yeah, I mean, there's it, not a question. I think it's factually documented that a lot of that stuff came out as a rejection of what um, of happy hardcore and that stuff. I think that's undeniable. Um, in the book, I make a joke that they they should all be thanking me for it, <laughs> but obviously that is a joke. Like you know, I just think it's cause and effect. When things go too far one way, things then go the other way. You know. And what were the favourite of those Usually. dark tunes? Well, I mean, I like I like Johnny Jungle, for example. I love Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. Um... And that whole drum and bass thing where it all got really beautiful for a while. Like the music was just lovely and the drums and bass were really heavy. Yeah, I liked a lot of that stuff. So looking back at Sesame Street and Smarties, is there anything you'd have done different if you could do it again? Or do you think it was just totally out of your control? Well, I would have had to have been more mature, which you couldn't do. Do you know what I mean? I was still a kid, really. Um, There's a lot of things we should have done. We should have trusted our own instincts. Like, when, when a record label said we should do a ballad, we should have said, fuck no. We're not going to do a ballad. Well, we're a rave act. When it came to the follow-up, we should have done... Uh, and, and I did argue for it a little bit, but I wasn't strong. I'm quite strong-willed now, but I wasn't then. I was much more um, go with what everybody else said. But I argued at the time that we should make a darker, hardcore tune instead of a more commercial tune because I thought that way Smarties could have survived. And I still think I'm right about that. I think as it was, we did lose control and that was a nail in the coffin, really. Um, It wasn't that it was a bad tune, but it was the same as Sesame Street, only without the hook, and that wasn't going to work. But Nick from Smarties, he was a songwriter and he wanted to write songs. Nothing wrong with that. Um, But I didn't think that would work, you know? I just thought that was not a good... We we could have done things like, um, you know, maybe practiced RPA. That would have been a good idea. Instead of just showing up with keyboards and doing whatever the fuck we wanted. <laughs> we could have hired dancers who could dance instead of getting me to do it because I was just an idiot. There's a lot of little things that we could have done. I mean, I often look back and you looked at Prodigy and they had outfits and they had a set list and they got up. And, and it's not like XL gave them a bunch of money. I mean, maybe they did, but I'd never heard that that was the case. They just got their shit together and did it properly. They had an MC and they, they looked like a, an act. We looked like people who had just walked in off the street, which is exactly what we were. And it wouldn't. It wouldn't have taken much to have done that, but we didn't do it. I don't think Tom thought of it. Uh, I don't think Nick thought of it, and I thought of it and dismissed it because it would have been an effort, and I was lazy. But that kind of fits so, in with the whole anarchist style, though, doesn't it? Of just turn up and do it, and to hell with everything else. It does, um, <laughs> but it was it was one of the key differences we had. In it's a very noticeable thing from uh, English attitude to American attitude. Like in England, we like our stars to be down to earth you know what i mean you you look at the heroes in english they're often crap people like robbie williams and that but they've got that kind of you know one of you type things going on you know but in america they wanted superstars we weren't even allowed to mingle with the crowd because that would take away the aura of what we were you know and it's another thing i think about quite a lot there's two ways you can approach being a person in the music industry nowadays you can be someone like me 
who talks to everyone and is online and is present and is basically one of one of us and that's one way of doing it or you could be somebody like Mathis the panacea who doesn't have much of an online present and stays above all of that to promote an aura of um what's the word mystique of mystery yeah that's right and both of those are fine both of those are fine um but i think as smarties we would have been better off acting like the klf than what we did do you know what i mean we knew our song was stupid but we could have played into that and made that part of our thing and it could have been funny and we could have rolled with it and we could have then done dark hardcore anything we like and we could have been like that's what we are weirdos you don't know what we're gonna do pew, pew, pew. <laughs> but, in, <laughs> but do you know what i mean but instead we just kind of plopped along and then disappeared but maybe nothing i also think that maybe nothing we could have done would have changed it that's that's the that's the feeling i get reading the book is that you are uh, as an artist unless you probably are you know as you mentioned madonna or you two or whoever you are just at the behest of the music industry and they'll do what they want with you yeah to some degree and, and not even that the music industry also doesn't know what it's doing they just again they look at the past and say this works so it'll work for you and that's not really the case um I think you're at the behest of the world. Sesame Street wouldn't have done any good at all if it had to come out two years earlier or two years later. Timing is everything with that sort of thing. Timing and circumstance. And you can't, you can't predict it. You can't manipulate that. Even back in the day, I remember when the rave scene got big and I remember things like Kylie Minogue having an album that flopped even though they advertised it relentlessly. Because you, there's only so much you can do. You can do the advertising, you can do having the right look, you can do the flashy video, but if people aren't into it, they're just not into it, and that's the end of it. Or Aphex Twin kicking Michael Jackson's ass on sales years back with his album. Because people were into Aphex Twin and they weren't into Michael Jackson. That's just what happens. You know? And and you can't you can't force that. And, and having left the scene in 997, you did return and, and, and you reset up Night Force effectively, um, and you've been very successful doing so. Uh, what did you change from the mistakes made by yourself or by the 90s rave and hardcore scene with the the, 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 the reinvigorated label? Uh, well, a lot of that's only really been the last few years. With KFA, I just tried to do Night Force again, hence the name KFA. Um, and I didn't really change anything. I, I, I was a little bit more confident that I just wanted to make the music I liked and other people would also like it. So that was a slight change. With Night Force, I was conscious of trying to make music people would like. Um, and often that was in in line with what I wanted to do, so it was fine. With KFA, I became more like, I'm just going to make the music I like, and if people like it, that's fine. And if they don't, I don't care. And with the current Night Force thing, um, that's a hun- that's become a hundred percent of what I do. I'm just like, I'm just going to do what I like, and I don't even consider whether it's popular or wanted. <laughs> Particularly, I just be like, this is what I like, and if I like it, I'm sure other people will like it. And sometimes they do. <laughs> do you think that there will ever be a resurgence of the, the sort of stuff that you make? I think there already is, honestly. In the last three years, um, the amount of sales and the amount of interest in the scene has it's unbelievable how busy it's got. Um, I People say, you know, like for example, we are about to reissue, remix and reissue Aeson's Trip to the Moon. Um, and Aeson said to me, how far do you think this can go? And I said, I have no idea, but I know that we haven't reached anywhere near what we could do yet. And he, he said, what, what are your aims for this release? And I said, sell as many as possible to as many people as possible. Not because I'm greedy for money, but because it's a brilliant piece of music. I want people to hear it. So I think there's already a resurgence. My biggest concern with it is it's old people. <laughs> like I want... There are there are there are young people buying hardcore, and there are young people buying the vinyl and stuff, and that's great. And to any of them listening, I love you. You're the best. Bring more people in. Um, but the scene can't survive if it's just people of my age. Do you know what I mean? Like we need the young blood to get into ha- it as well. And I don't know how that can be done, um, except I do know you can't make it happen. With all these things, I know it sounds fatalistic, but I think it will either happen or it won't. You can't. You just have to keep making good music and people will either come to it or they won't and there's nothing you well, You, you know, about. I was actually thinking about this recently, Chris, because some of the stuff that is being made nowadays is brilliant and I think that after a long period of it being absolutely toilet, it actually is really good again and 
And it is a question about how you get people. To, it's not just young people. It's just people in general to find out about this great stuff that's being made. And I, and I was sort of thinking, is there because I work in PR as well, I was sort of thinking, is there a scope for doing a, you know, a PR campaign where people come together and try to push it in various different outlets of, of you know, dance music outlets and, you know, reach out to your DJ mags and to your, that sort of stuff. I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what you think about that idea. I, I just, I've just, over the years, I've just become, um, I've come to the belief that you can't do anything except for, I think good music is the root cause of everything else that happens. Uh, and if you have good music, things will happen. And if you don't, they won't. But the things that happen are completely unpredictable. I mean, look at Smarties. Who would have thought that was going to happen? You know, look at the rave scene in general. Oh, that's not going to happen, is it? You look, you look at the music industry in 1990, absolutely no one in the music industry was prepared for that. So I just... I think a PR campaign, sure, you can get a few people into it. But will they stick around? I don't know. But if you've got good music, they're going to hear it eventually. It's just, you know, I, I personally what I think will happen is somebody will do something. I don't know what, but somebody will do something. And I, I kind of already saw it. One of the big uh, house DJs did an old school hardcore tune. And everyone was like, oh, my God, they're doing old school hardcore. Wow. And it had a piano and a breakbeat in it. And I was like, oh, wow, you're doing exactly what we've been doing. <laughs> Amazing. Do you think, you know, do you think coronavirus could possibly help? Because now there's people that have not been able to go out and party for so long that once they managed to get that freedom back, that coupled with slight resurgence in breakbeat hardcore could start a new wave of raving. Maybe, maybe, I don't know. Again, the coronavirus came along and I was like, oh, we're fucked because we were doing um, the, uh, I can't remember what the marketplace is called, the name slipped out of my head, but we were doing this big market thing that they have going on and we'd ordered a bunch of extra records and of course it got shut down because you can't have a live market now. And I was like, well, we've ordered a whole bunch of records we're not going to be able to sell and we've sold pretty much all of them. Um, So... I don't know. I don't know. The world is so unpredictable. We'll just have to see what happens. Things will go on their own way. And I think the best you can do is, it's like a river. The best you can do is slightly nudge it in the direction you want to go, but you can't direct it. You can't tell it where to go. I think what will happen is somebody will do something that's not like Smarties, but it's catchy enough that everybody else will hear it. And then it will spread like a virus online. And then everybody's eyes will turn to us. Um, And then things will blow up. Like it always happens in the music industry. Whether that'll be tomorrow or next week or next year or whether it'll just not happen at all, no one knows. But I think if it does happen, that's the way it's going to happen. Oh, well, let's hope it does. Uh, you're listening to uh, the 90s Rave Podcast with me, Tom Latcham, and Chrissy Richards. If you want to get in touch, hello at the 90s Rave Podcast.co.uk. Here's another feature on Raw, the 90s Rave Podcast. Me, Tom Latcham, and Chrissy Richards. We've thought about doing it in the past, uh, over the past two interviews, but we felt that it wouldn't get the response that it probably would get from Chris Howell, because we know a bit of like uh, what Chris Howell is like, and it's called Beefy Quaver. Uh, and we want him to... Uh, he's looking incredulous <laughs> on the video. Uh, we want him to name some of the people that he's had some beef with in the scene. Yeah, tell us your beef. Uh, Beef from the 90s. I I generally don't mind talking about this sort of thing in some ways because um, I don't care, really. But I'm also an outsider in the scene in a lot of ways. I've just always just done my own thing. Um, My only hesitation is that... uh, Let's use Suburban Bass as a good example. So... From my perspective, I feel that Smarties were stolen from by Danny Donnelly, specifically um, from Suburban Bass. And I know various other Suburban Bass artists feel the same way. Having said that, I'm emotionally parked, I heard someone say with that. If I think about it, it makes me angry. So I've just put that in a box and I don't think about it. The Smarties record is likewise nothing to me as far as that goes. I'm not going to chase him for royalties. I'm not going to get mad. You know, like, I just don't care. I'm done with it. So when it comes to beefs with people, I feel that way about a lot of things. I also have found, um, since I got better from, or since I became aware of my own issues, I've become much more, forgiving is the wrong word, but less grudge-holdy, I suppose. Like, for example, recently I did a uh, deal with Hectic Records to start repressing and re-releasing their stuff. 
Now, I had an issue with Ramos and Supreme that I mentioned in the book because I felt like they ripped me off. But I found that I don't really care that much. And I was like, well, if Ramos is going to be cool, we can just be cool. You know, like my deal with the Hectic is with Chris, who owns the label. So I didn't have to deal directly with Ramos. But maybe it's just age. I just don't care that much. I'm not going to get into a big business deal with Ramos and Supreme again because I don't have any incentive to. But I'm also not mad about it. I'm not holding a grudge about it. We were young. We were stupid. I'm sure I made mistakes as well. Like, you know, we all tend to think we're right all the time, and that's obviously not the case. So maybe maybe I fucked up too. Whatever. I don't care enough to keep it going. So if he wants to be called, which he seems to, then everything's fine, isn't it? Um, other than that, uh, I had a beef with um, Elstack years ago because he kept sampling us, and then he ripped us off with six days. But again, until we talked about it now, I haven't thought about that for years. I, I don't care. It doesn't matter, does it? Who cares? He can do what he likes, whatever. <laughs> I, just, I, just, I just think well, those are a waste of time. What I'm interested in is uh, the next track I make and how my friends are doing and looking after my kids and all the rest of it. It's just a bunch of shit that I don't care about. So, yeah. Fair do. Nice one. So we are, alas, uh, running out of time with uh, Lunacy, the Night Force uh, legend. Uh, but in his book, like in his book, he sort of finishes with some odds and sods that he hasn't been able to sort of shoehorn into uh, into the book itself. <laughs> uh, so why don't we end with some of those odds and sods here on the 90s Rave podcast? Uh, Chris, uh, <laughs> I didn't ever think I was going to ask about Ian Beale uh, in the 90s Rave scene. But you, uh, good old Ian uh, Beale. Good old Ian Beale. When you went on top of the pops, you met... Ian Beale, his real name is Adam Woodyat uh, from EastEnders, and you said he was rude to you. What did he do that was so rude? I can't remember. <laughs> he was, I think he was just really dismissive. We met that a couple of times with people. Like, we met Naina Cherry. We were introduced to her at a party, and she just sniffed and walked off. And I think I, 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 Nick remembers it more because Nick actually watched EastEnders, so he was quite offended. <laughs> I didn't watch it, so I didn't care. Um, but I think he was just rude or said something nasty to us because it was on the same street i can't remember he might have just been in a bad mood who knows yeah i haven't even thought of him until you brought it up he's not a. well i, I don't even well, understand as, as nick will be able to tell you ian bill suffered a lot of misery through his life so uh you know in the end i, I think we know who's laughing well he was on he was on eastenders how could you not be miserable <laughs> this is very true i mean that whole show is just miserable when people ask me about england i say if you watch eastenders you'll understand it people watch that and that's better than their actual life <laughs> <laughs> that's how miserable it is to live in England <laughs> well it's improved since you left by the way it's glorious at the moment that, that, oh, that, may, that sure. may not be true I'm sure <laughs> so can you tell us how Posh Spice saved your career well she didn't save my career play I mean, along Chris <laughs> alright she saved my career and I love her um, this is the story by the way that I've that read the was book just... and I've been telling loads of people about it. it's such a fantastic story it is a fantastic story it was just one of those things where I think she was working with Johnny L and for that True Steppers, was that the name of it? Again, I, I know I sound vague and people would think, why do you sound vague? But it's because once these things happen, I don't think about them again. I'm just like, that's done. I never think about it. Uh, they just sampled a riff from one of my tracks and uh, it was just an obscure one, Cloudy Surface on KF17, like a bell riff. And then they pretended, well, they didn't, um, but the record label pretended that they hadn't sampled it. And we were like, yeah, but you really have, because, look, it's identical. <laughs> and they were like, well, where did you get that sound from? And we were like, what, we're not going to tell you that? What, what do you think? Fucking hell. Um, and then they were like, well, we're going to have a musicologist assess it to see whether it's the same. And there's like three musicologists in the world, and they're all in the pay of the big record labels. Of course. And so the musicologist said, well, we don't really know if it's the same or not. And I was like, so in other words, you found out it's exactly the same, but you don't want to admit it because then you'll have to pay us money. And in the end, I was just like, well, just been right. I mean, I've always thought this way, but you sample someone, you have to pay for it. And that's okay. Well, I don't know why everyone makes a big fuss about it. Just pay some money. So I was like, just pay me some money and then we're done. And they paid me some money and we were done. It was very nice. Did it help? Did it help to set up the new label? No, but it helped me um, have a deposit for a house. I mean, it did in effect. It helped me have a deposit for a house, and it was at a time when I didn't have my record label. Um, and, you know, how things have an effect because I had a house where I could live and I got a better job and I started earning some money and then I could set up the record label. So it, it was part of it. 
So um, tell us about Vibes' purple underpants. That's another That's another one that's gone too far, really. It was just funny, that's all. We went to pick up the DAT tape from uh, Vibes and Wish Doctor done a remix for us. And we were told to come and knock on Vibes' door at like 10 o'clock in the morning or something, which we did and we got no answer. Me and Julian Poozy from Future Primitive were just waiting around. Eventually he answers the door and he's just wearing a pair of purple wire fronts. And we were just like, oh, look away. Like, I mean, it was just, I don't know. I just thought that was odd. Like, who who answers the door like that? I, I wouldn't. So you've got some fanatical fans all over the world. Nightfalls has a big cult following. Um, yeah, I've often thought I should make it into a religion. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I you'll think kill I've, yourself at the end. But the trouble with that is, you see, I thought about it, but then I would probably die horribly because people who start religions almost always die in horrendous <laughs> circumstances. And I... <laughs> I don't fancy being nailed to a cross or have stones thrown at me until I die, so I thought better not. <laughs> but what is the weirdest thing any of your fans have ever done? Have you ever been stalked, sent strange emails? I had, um, this is when I was with my ex-wife, we played a gig in Canada and this girl rushed up to me and flung her arms around me and then burst into tears and did that bowing thing that people did for a while because <laughs> uh, she loved me so much. And I was mortified for two reasons. One... It was just embarrassing. And two, I was married. What a waste. I could have done something. Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> Is this your ex-wife? <laughs> no, but it was just, I just, I find that sort of thing really weird. Like, I genuinely find it weird. I do understand hero worship, but even when I've spoken to people like Hyperon or Aeson, who I absolutely admire, like they are rave gods to me, I've never felt the urge to go, <laughs> but I don't, they're people. You know, they're talented people who I admire greatly, but I'm not going to wet myself because Aeson sent me an email. I might squee a little bit in my head like, woo, you know, because he's a hero. But I just collapsing on the floor in tears because somebody walked past. Just I I don't I don't get it, really. (laughs) In your book, you name uh, two people, just two people who you've worked with, uh, who you think believe are totally trustworthy now that might have changed but one of them was kevin energy uh, but this, we don't need to go into how many people you have trust worked with, worked with that are trustworthy but what i'm interested in is what is it that you think is about the rave scene or perhaps even just the music industry that makes people so untrustworthy there's two types of people in every scene every art scene one is the artist and one is the businessman and they fundamentally don't work together because the artist is only concerned with their art and the music comes secondary. And the businessman is only concerned with the business and the art comes second. The result is you get people that do good business deals where they make a lot of money. But the artist has their work compromised or stolen. Um, and the artist is always going to be vulnerable because the artist doesn't care enough. Because they care about their art, not the money. So I think... The best people in the industry to deal with are people like Kevin Energy and uh, Oller at Stage One. And I hesitate to say myself, but they're all people who are artists, but also businessmen. So they know the value of the art they're selling, but they have no wish to steal from the artist. And there's not that many of them. A lot of the time you get people who are just trying to make money. And there's nothing wrong with just trying to make money. That's fine. It's just the clash between the two in the art world is what results in so much misery. And so how do you feel about your career and also about the 90s rave scene in particular? Um, They're two different things. The 90s rave scene in in particular, I absolutely love it. I just, you know, I find as I get older and I hate this because I, I just think, oh, I'm old. But I have nostalgia to the point where I'm almost in tears sometimes. It's really weird. It's only happened over the last few years. But I will sometimes think back to the days when I used to skateboard and I just... I just think, oh, God, I wish I could be there again. And now I know why old people sit in a chair all day going. (laughs) (laughs) Because in their head, they're remembering those wonderful things, you know? So I think about that. And I think about, like, the 90s rave scene. It was such a beautiful time. Like, I mean, it wasn't perfect. But you you always edit. It's rose-coloured glasses. You know, you always edit out the bad things. But a lot of it I remember. I remember dancing at Labyrinth and seeing my friends and, just so many good things about that. As far as my career goes, I never think of it at all. I don't... The only time I even have to consider it is when we're doing something like this and someone asks me about it. I, I'm a person who... The past is not that important to me. Like, I don't think about... 
I don't sit at home going, wow, wasn't piano progression great? I'm so talented. You know, like I just, it's just something that I did and it's nice and I'm glad people liked it. But what I'm interested in, like right now, is we're working on the Ace and Box set. Uh, I'm talking to NRG about stuff. I've got a new psych angle tune I'm going to work on. I had this idea of what if you could make a breakbeat tune where the amen keeps changing all the way through and never repeats for a bar, but the rest of it works. Like that's what interests me. That interests me. You know, but what doesn't interest me is the tune I made last week, other than the fact that I haven't done the artwork for it. And that'll be fun. And once I've done the artwork and I've got the tune and the record arrives and I'm like, that's brilliant. And I'm bored. (laughs) Like I'm not interested anymore. I'm I'm on to the next thing, you know. So with my career, it's the same thing. I don't, and it's probably a bad thing. I don't plan for the future and I don't think of the past. I just think of what's great right now. And then that kind of works in general. So yeah, I'm not ashamed of my career. There were things I did wrong. Uh, I guess I'm proud of it, but I don't walk around being like, wow, I'm lunacy from Night Force. You know, it's... It's just a thing. It's I think right. it's an incredibly uh, healthy way to be, and you've had a great career, and you should be, feel very proud of it. Uh, finally, before we go, and this is, I find this question quite insightful, actually, into who each of the artists who we're interviewing. Who from the 90s rave scene would you really like to hear us interview on Raw? I would like you to interview Messiah, because then I would have found Messiah, and I could try and get their back catalogue <laughs> and make them do new music. <laughs> how much is it going to, how much does it work? Most of the, I don't know, but if you can find them, fucking tell me. Because most of the art, most of the artists I've always wanted to, I mean, I'm so lucky. Like, I don't, I have done nothing to deserve the amount of luck I've had recently. But I, I don't, like, if I had to list the people I would love to work with, it would have been Hyperon Experience, Sub Love, Asen, NRG, Messiah. And I haven't got Messiah. And I'm like a guy, I, I'm not, I don't want to collect them all, but they're just one of the artists I always massively admired. And they were on kicking records. And like most of the labels back then, they were shysters who stole everything. So, like, I mean, the only labels I think that didn't steal everything from everyone is XL, and that's it. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> as far as I can tell from everything I've heard from people, XL were the only one that didn't massively rip off their artists one way or another. Um, so, I would like to hear what happened to Messiah and their story because I haven't heard it. Okay, we'll see. I mean, we'll yeah. see if we can track him down. We'll get our best we're, people on the case. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll get our private detective on the go there. Sadly, our time has come to an end now, Chris. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Um, it's always a pleasure. It's been my absolute pleasure to be here, and I can't wait for the check you promised me for being here. Big... We don't want our other artists to know that. Shush. It's it's not a big <laughs> one. That's the only thing we'll say. It's a very, very no. small check. No, I'm I'm used. I'm used to that, and so is the wife. <laughs> uh, that's lunacy. Chris Howe, uh, what a hero, what a legend. Cheers, mate. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Thank you very much. Cheers. You've been listening to Raw's exclusive interview with Night Force Records main man and top of the pop celeb lunacy. Do not miss our next guest. He is a veteran DJ and owner of big time label V Recordings. That's right, it's Brian G. If you have enjoyed listening to this episode, why not head over to gofundme.com forward slash the 90s rave podcast and help keep this project going. Anything you can spare will make a difference and you might even be able to bag yourself some signed artwork of our guests. Don't forget to add us on Facebook, Twitter and Insta. Just search for the 90s Rave Podcast. See you in a couple of weeks.